Good morning and welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you joining us online, good morning to you also. We are in the book of Acts this morning, chapter 18. We will stand and take verses 24 through 26, but we will consider verses 18 through 28. So if you have your Bibles open or not, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 26. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Please be seated. Receiving correction, that's one of the focal points of this morning's consideration. And there we just read about Apollos, and a man who was very much knowledgeable of Scripture, receiving correction. Uh, this kind of correction, uh, as read in verse 26, was constructive because it was necessary And it is a bonus that it was well received. Most of us do not care to be corrected. We don't care for correction of any kind. Even if it is helpful, it carries a sting. Maybe you pronounce a word the wrong way and someone corrects you. And they're right. There's nothing you can say but the word the right way. And yet there's a little sting. You're grateful, but you wish you didn't make the mistake. Proverbs 15 gets right to the point on this one. Well... Actually, Proverbs 12, but let me give you 15 first. Proverbs 15, verse 12. A scoffer does not love one who corrects him, nor will he go to the wise. Well, we either grow up and accept that there's a price attached to perfection, or we bristle up and make others pay for our imperfection. We've got to think these things through, and the Bible makes us do these things if we come to it in earnest, if we decrease, that the Lord could increase. Uh, it, you know, it's a very clever system that God has. You can read the Scripture and let the Scriptures correct you, or you can neglect the Scripture and wait for someone else to correct you. I prefer to be corrected by the Lord through the Scripture. Uh, you, you know, etiquette, uh, to learn things. So maybe you're in a meeting and the phone, your, your cell phone rings. Well, if you answer that phone in that meeting, everybody else has got to stop and wait for you and try not to act like they're listening to what you're saying or judging you. Like, why don't you leave the room? Uh, How do you deal with these things? Somebody's got to pull you aside and say, you know, maybe it'd be better to take it in the hallway or something. And then then you have the risk of losing a friend, somebody resenting being called out even if gently. But that's not the case with Apollos. But here's, here's a proverb that really gets to the point on this subject of receiving correction. Proverbs 12, verse 1, Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. It says it right there. That's what it says. (laughs) Now, of course, it's not everyone's place to correct others. Some tend to think so. 
but is it not easier to criticize somebody than to think? Isn't it just easier to just, you know, why do you do that? Some people make a career out of judging everybody else and criticizing them. Isn't it easier to feel than to reason? A lot of problems are created. Sacred cows are still born to this day. There are things that you can't touch. It's wrong, but you can't say anything about it because the feelings have already decided that this is something that needs to be propped up when the Bible doesn't agree with them. In fact, it often disagrees with them. Correction should improve performance. And that is exactly what it did with Apollos. It improved how he served the Lord. Proverbs, again, chapter 9. You know, it's very, something very suggestive about the Lord saying, I'm going to give you a book of wise sayings. I don't think you should go through life without these wise sayings. And uh, Proverbs, so here's the third one this morning. Do not correct a scoffer, lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. That's a sharp contrast between the two. Which one are you? When someone corrects you, do you scoff? Do you begin to resent the correction? Of course, there's a right way and a wrong way. Aquila and Priscilla did it the right way, and we'll get to that. When we get to that verse, we'll return to uh, the proper way and an improper way. The religious elite of the days that Christ walked, uh, you know, he called out their sin, and they resented him for it, killed him for it. That's how deep their resentment ran. Correction did not appeal to them, and they were in dire need of this correction. Here's what the Lord told his disciples to do with such people. Matthew 15, 1, let them alone. You know, a lot of people don't like such things. Why are you withholding the gospel? Why are you got to say something? You know, you have to be led by the Holy Spirit. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. They can't handle correction. They are wrong. They know they are wrong. And they don't want to hear it. They scoff at it. And as the proverb says, they hated him for it. Well, that's, that's the foundation work for when we get to Apollos. It was an interesting character. Verse 18 So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Sincrea, for he had taken a vow. Now we're going back a little bit. He's he's leaving Corinth. We were there last session. Uh, He will return to Corinth. And he takes Priscilla and Aquila with him. Uh, Verse 11 tells us that Paul remained in Corinth. It says, teaching the word of God among them for 18 months. I have noticed a lot of Christians don't want to be taught the word of God. They're just just not interested. They they have enough. They know the main points and they're good. Uh, This is uh, not what the Bible teaches. And it's it's disappointing, but it is a fact. There are others, of course, that, uh, you know, love the word of God and very much interested in what Scripture has to say, and those men appointed to teach the Word. Well, here in verse 18, where it says, So Paul still remained a good while. That still remained a good while statement suggests an extended stay beyond the 18 months. Uh, That's what it takes. 
to build and establish a church uh, before he leaves. It says in verse 18, Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. Well, that's where his home church was, in Antioch. But he left a solid and strong church, a promising church. When he writes to them later, he makes this comment about them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7, he says, You came short in no gift. You had the gift of the Holy Spirit, the teaching, the, the you know, just um, uh, the discernment, and so many gifts they had. Not everyone. Not everyone there. Like the church at Laodicea, they were hot with the wrong things, lukewarm with the Word of God. See, in Laodicea, they boasted about, we are rich and wealthy and we have need of nothing. They weren't lukewarm about that. When it came to the things of Scripture, to the things of God, they were apathetic. And the Lord said, you nauseate me with this kind of stuff. And he was kind enough to tell them, to correct them, to give them a chance to say, you know, that's right. What shall I do to be saved? Anyway, this church that came short and no gift would suffer damage. This because of abusive Christians, not necessarily towards each other, though some of that was going on too. But they were shallow, many of them. They were bitter. They were irrational influences inside the church. But let's not forget, there were also good people there, loving Christians, solid Christians. And Paul knew it. Some churchgoers think it is their duty to interfere, to intrude, to irritate. I don't know if they are conscious of it on one hand, but on the other hand, you say, how can they not be? What is the antidote to being that person that when you come in the room, the temperature drops two degrees? What is the antidote? Well, to try to be Christ-like all the time. Just the pursuit of trying to be like Christ will... Heighten your level of Christianity. Paul later wrote at least three letters to this church. Two of them have survived, 1st and 2nd Corinthians as we know them today. And each of the three had to do with conflict, with precepts. What are precepts? They're rules. Yeah, you can't win with rules. Some will say, you know, oh, you got too many rules. Then at the same breath they will say, why doesn't somebody do something about it? But you, you have to. Uh, I mean, it's defense. It's a, it, it protects you from falling off the edge. The precepts that belong to the church are not something we should whine about. Um, it, it's not legalistic to uphold New Testament commandments. It's obedient. And it's unfortunate that when some folks are corrected, they cry legalism. No, it's grace and action. We want to improve it, and, and it, we don't look to do this, and it shouldn't be going on all the time, but from time to time, it does occur. Well, it says here that uh, Priscilla and Aquila were with him. So he departs Corinth. He brings with them these two, Priscilla and Aquila, to Ephesus. He's going to leave them in Ephesus, but he left others in Corinth, solid leadership there. It, he says, it says he had his hair cut off in Sincrea. Well, that's a seaport, about seven miles east of Corinth. It's like Corinth light. And uh, so Phoebe, who, Phoebe was that dear sister that took the letter to the Romans to the Romans. And she was from Sincrea. Uh, for he had taken a vow. 
Now, again, not legalism. It's voluntary. There's no mandate. You have to do this if you want to get points with God. Paul decided there was something passionate enough, we're not told the details, that he wanted to take a vow. Uh, this sign for this vow was that his hair remained uncut until the vow was fulfilled. I would do this, but I'd look like Bozo in about two weeks, and so I, I don't take those kind of vows. Uh, um, anyway, uh, not every Old Testament action is against New Testament grace. If he wanted to take a vow similar to the Nazarite, <clears throat> he could, with the exception of taking that ram to the temple to have that offered to consummate the vow. That part was not acceptable because Christ fulfilled all of the blood sacrifices. They were a type of his coming. They announced uh, his ministry. There's so much in, involved in that. I think one of the reasons why he may have taken this route was to signal to the Jews that he did esteem the Old Testament law as God's word because there was this conflict between the law of God in the scripture and rabbinical laws that came from them talking about scripture, which is going to, when we get to Apollos, I think is one of the things that separated him from many of the Jews of his day. He wasn't under rabbinical law. Neither was John the Baptist. And Paul had broken free from this. And he said, I count those things as rubbish. He had graduated. He had gone to a, a higher level in his understanding of Scripture and the God of Scripture. Anyway, the Nazarite vow called for the hair to be cut at the temple door. Well, Paul is cutting it here in Sincrea. He's So there's a distinction there. Uh, he's 800 miles from the temple. Uh, as I mentioned, the, the ram would be included. And, uh, you, you know, if vows, again, there's nothing wrong with them. Just make sure you fulfill them. Sapphira and Ananias made a vow, and they lied. And they were called out on it. And it cost them their lives. Psalm 116, verse 14, I will pay my vows to Yahweh, now in the presence of all his people. And so the integrity of, of if you said it, let your yes be yes, your no be no. There's nothing shameful about that, unless, of course you begin to go back on it, then the integrity breaks down. Now, there are those that say in Paul's day, and this is likely rabbinical, this was rabbinical law, if you were, if you were to take such a vow and you couldn't get to the temple, you would cut your hair and you had 30 days to get to the temple and then offer it. Ah, Paul, I don't think he's interested in that rabbinical uh, stipulation at all. That's not what the scripture said, and that's why rabbinical Judaism was such a problem. It would make up these laws that the scripture wouldn't make up. You couldn't, you just, they were, became oppressive. Anyway, uh, verse 19, and he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So he's going to leave uh, Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus when he goes on uh, in making his trek to Antioch. He's going to go to Caesarea in Israel and then Jerusalem and then quickly up to Antioch. We'll come to that in a little bit. Uh, two years ago, thereabout, he was forbidden from coming into this area with the gospel. Well, clearly that prohibition has been lifted by the Lord. We'll get more 
on the city of Ephesus, because it matters. Uh, when we get to the 19th chapter, hopefully next session, we'll cover uh, what, what he was up against in there. He ended up spending more time in Ephesus on record, at least as far as we know, um, than any other city. And that is, um, Ephesus was a very interesting all Christians should be knowledgeable what happened in Ephesus. I'm getting ahead of the sessions, but it's so important. They benefited from the teaching of Paul, of Apollos, of Timothy, of John the Apostle. And how did it end for them as far as we know? You left your first love. That's how it went for them. Is there not a lesson in that? that be careful, Christian. Uh, you know, just uh, I, th- I think about... Um, you, you, how unqualified I am to serve the Lord. But that's, it, it, but that's not how he sees it. He sees, he, he sees I, yeah, you are unqualified, and this is for all of us. But I can overcome that. I can use you nonetheless. Satan will say, you're miserable, you're not worthy, and don't do it. The Lord says, well, you are a sinner, And all your righteousness is filthy rags. But I want to dwell with you, inside you, because I love you that much. I don't want to be without you. He's not dwelling. The Holy Spirit does not dwell in us to keep an eye on us. (laughs) I can't let you out of my sight. He's there because he's at home with the believer. Because he sees beyond this life, the sin, the struggle. He sees the finished product. And he loves it. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied, the prophet Isaiah said of him in Isaiah 53. And he meant every word of it. The next time you think low of yourself, you remember, you remember that the Lord died for you and he didn't have to because he saw more to you than what you see and what others see. Well, anyway, uh, yeah, who is fit to stand in the pulpit? None are worthy, no, not one, unless the Lord makes them so. And we call that anointing. Unction is the old word. Well, he left them there, Aquila and Priscilla, and he himself taught in the synagogue, always going where the assembly was, where there was an audience. It just made perfect sense. What was he supposed to do? Knock on the door of everybody in the city and and repeat the... the, Oh, it would be nice to have everybody together. Anyway, verse 20 when they asked him to stay longer, a longer time with them, he did not consent. See, this man is, you know, here God is doing a work in, with the Ephesians. But he's also doing a work with Paul. And Paul knew that. And he would not be persuaded. No man, no beast, no building could, could change him to get him to disobey God. He knew what the Lord was telling him to do. We read, we get a snippet again, 2 Corinthians this time, chapter 1, verse 17. He says, the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh? It's rhetorical. He's saying to the Corinthians, come on, you know me. Do you, do you think I, I, I just ignore God or do I consult him? Do I lay everything out before him and then act upon that? Of course I do. And so when he tells these Ephesians, listen, I have got to go. He's telling them because he's led to go. And he will not be browbeaten. 
He will not have anybody make him feel guilty. He will, not, he will do what God has told them to do, and, and hopefully uh, there will be no problem. And there shouldn't be. It's not the people, you know, when we get to chapter 20, Luke, and Luke tells them, you know, the prophet Agabus comes up, don't go to Jerusalem. They're going to harm you there. And Paul says, what do you mean breaking my heart like this, crying and all this about me? I'm ready to die in Jerusalem. And he almost did. So this man, Paul, uh, this uh, just uh, so many things to learn from how he did business. And the others, as I mentioned Wednesday night, nothing in Scripture is about a single person. It's about us and, every, and those in every generation before us and should the Lord tarry after us. Well, in verse eight to 21 now of Acts 18, but took leave of them. That means he left saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem. I will return again to you, God willing, and he sailed from Ephesus. Now, many Bible commentators take this and associate it with the vow he made of, you know, cutting his hair uh, off and then, well, he's going to Jerusalem to offer the vow. I don't, I don't think that's necessary. It doesn't say that. It says he had the vow, he cut off his hair, he's moving on with his life, he's going to Jerusalem, uh, he's determined to get there. And, uh, it, well, one of the reasons why he would be determined to get there is because travel season by ship, it gets rough from September to November. After that, until February, you don't go on the water, not, not out, you know, in, in deep sea. And so the, part of the rush would be, I have to make it before this window closes, uh, this window for travel closes. Sort of like Antarctica, you know, in the wintertime there, more, you're stuck unless it's an, an emergency. Anyway, uh, multitudes would be gathering in Jerusalem for whatever feast this is, and uh, the opportunities to reach the Jews would abound. Paul was a man of letters. In other words, he'd write letters, and not speaking about his credentials. Uh, and who knows what interaction he had with people in Jerusalem. But evidently, there was something that was pressing upon him and kept secret from us. Uh, so it says, but I will return again to you, God willing, and he sailed from Ephesus, subject to the will of the king. That's what he says. I'd love to come back if God lets me. And apparently they were fine with this. Well, did God did let him. God did will. And as I mentioned, his longest stay in any city recorded in Scripture was in this city of Ephesus. Verse 22, And when he had landed in Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. Well, the Jewish Christians in Caesarea, this is Caesarea by the Mediterranean Sea, as opposed to inland Caesarea Philippi, uh, this was solid church. They didn't give them a hard time. The Jerusalem Christians, on the other hand, a whole other story. The dynamics were different. This was a famous seaport. Philip had ministered there. Peter had led the household of, of Cornelius to Christ. Uh, there, anyway, it says, and gone up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. Now, a Jew or a Gentile familiar with the Jews would have understood what that meant. That means he went to Jerusalem and then he went to Antioch. Jerusalem was physically elevated. You had the Hinoam Valley and the Kidron Valley. It was, it was elevated. But if you were to travel, if you're, as a righteous Jew, if you were to travel from Jerusalem to Mount Everest, you would say, I'm going down to Mount Everest. 
If you were traveling from Mount Everest to Jerusalem, you'd say, I'm going up to Jerusalem. It wasn't a matter of, of, of physical location. The temple of the Lord was in Jerusalem. And that elevated its status above every other city. And so when he says that uh, here in verse 22, and he landed in Caesarea. Okay, he's going south now to Jerusalem. But it says he'd gone up. And then he greeted the church in Jerusalem and went down to Antioch. Well, Antioch is north, 300 miles north. There's that elevated uh, under, uh, place in the heart of the Jew of Jerusalem. Psalm, 135, well, Psalm 137, verse 5. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. That is to say, if I forget you, let me starve. Uh, because the right hand of skill is the breadwinner. How is he going to sustain themselves? And so uh, the Jewish readers understood the meaning of this. And here we are in the New Testament. And the New Testament saints still understand that Jerusalem is a big deal to God. and should be a big deal to us. And it will be a big deal into the millennial kingdom. Uh, to this day, we look at Jerusalem and we say, look at that prophecy fulfilled. Who else has got anything like this? Nobody. Nobody got it. So, uh, it's, it's just a very sweet um, thing about our Christianity. Uh, this Jerusalem visit, however, uneventful. It won't be next time. Next time he gets arrested there. Well, to Antioch, that's his home church, and uh, they knew how to be a church, Antioch. Not all churches, Corinth had its problems, and Laodicea, Thyatira, the other ones, they, they had their problems. But this church, Antioch, always standing four square behind this man, Paul. You have to love that church. We have no apostolic letter written to the church at Antioch because none was needed. There are these churches, for example, in the New Testament that are stellar. Antioch, of course, Philippi, Philadelphia, Smyrna, Rome. The church in Rome. I mean, Paul thought, I, uh, I want to come to you. I want to bless you. And then he just goes rattling off teachings, and you just you have to love that. Caesarea, that he stopped off in. Thessalonica. These are uh, churches with, uh, that have no uh, demerit marked against them, and that's not true of some of many of the of the others, even Colossae. Colossae was, you know, the, the the Gnostics were sneaking into the church at Colossae. Paul had probably not gone to that city. It was a small city, and he did target the bit, bigger cities, uh, and wisely so. But uh, they had a problem, and and they let Paul know. And and Paul wrote the Colossian letter. It was a beautiful letter that, you know, let no one, uh, you know, steal from you. Through the philosophies of men. What, what Christ has given to you. Again, something that many Christians seem to just dismiss. And they, they ask the world, how should we be Christians? Uh, maybe you say, I've never seen that. Well, talk to me later. I'll point some of them out to you. But remember, your sacred cow might be slain in that conversation. So we come back to verse 20. Sacred cow is something that people have put on a pedestal and you can't touch it. And, and God has not put it there. In fact, he's condemned it. And that sacred cows, they're still born to this day. I'll come back to some of that maybe. Verse 23. Uh, and he had spent some time there. He departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, 
strengthening all the disciples. So he leaves Antioch. He spent some time in his home church, and he goes to, uh, again, the region of Galatia and Phrygia in that order. What's he doing? Strengthening the believers. Do you know how easy it is for a pastor to beat the sheep, always tell them what they're doing wrong? Uh, it, it's because it's easy. Because it's not that it's not true, but it's not the that's not the solution. In fact, that's not that is not the way to do it. Sometimes you have to. The scripture, when you come across it in scripture, it demands it, and, and we all take our medicine and uh, grow stronger because of it. We all do something wrong. I get everything right. That's my problem. <laughs> yeah, I wish. Anyway. This is his third outreach, the beginning of the third time he's going in, uh, out into the world. And with a stroke of Luke's pen, 1,500 miles are covered in verses 21 to 23. When he leaves Antioch, he goes to Galatia, he goes into free. I mean, he just, and then he, he continues. We, we're going to come to that in a, in a minute. But here he is in Sincrea, Ephesus. Uh, Caesarea, Jerusalem, Antioch, Galatia, Phrygia, and Macedonia. There's the 15 miles in just three verses. Now, he enjoyed a victory with the Galatian church. He had earlier, oh, three years earlier about, wrote to them the Galatian letter. And he was saying, who's bewitched you? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by your own self-will because you like this and you like that? But you're not listening to God. Uh, you know, he just, he called them out on some, he, he said to them things like, because I tell you the truth, am I your enemy now? Well, he won. The church is still receiving him. The churches are still there. We need victories. We want to see victories. Well, there's a big one. Verse 24, now a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, not Virginia, incidentally, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures came to Ephesus. See that mighty in the scriptures? Getting a little ahead of myself. That means he was not under rabbinical Judaism. He was under scripture. And that's a big deal. John the Baptist would have not, John the Baptist was a priest by birth. We never read of him ministering in the temple because it was infested with Jew, rabbinical Judaism. The rabbis saying what, how, how they should live. When Moses never said these things. And, and of course, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus just eviscerates rabbinical Judaism, and they were against him for it. Anyway, here in verse 24, the narrator, Luke, gives us a glimpse into uh, the absence of Paul from Ephesus. We go back to Ephesus where he left Priscilla and Aquila. And Luke says, well, let me just tell you what was happening there, because this is a pretty big deal how it was handled. And we can all learn from this. But first, let's talk about the city that this man, Apollos, was born in. Even though he's named after a pagan god, his life is, is, is jettisoned that, any connection to that. This Alexandria was on Egypt's Nile Delta, the breadbasket. Rome got much of her food from here. The second largest city in the Roman Empire. Very well developed. Famous for its lighthouse, one of the wonders of the world. Famous for its uh, museum and famous for its library. Over 700,000 volumes were in their library. It all burned up. Some believe a jealous librarian burned it up from another city, but we won't go into that. Anyway, uh, a large 
Jewish colony there. Now, this is very important to us, too. It is said in New Testament times that a third of the population of this big city was Jewish. Well, what did that do for anyone? Well, they gave us the Septuagint, the translation of the Old Testament Hebrew Bible into Greek. That's the Septuagint. Jesus would have used the Septuagint. He would have used also the Hebrew. But uh, he used the Septuagint. Now, versions of the Bible is not synonymous with contradictions. Just because you have a, your version, I have my version. When we talk about most things in conversation, we, we mean we don't agree. But that's not how it is with the Bible. We have different versions of the dictionary. But knucklehead means knucklehead in whatever dictionary you use. So there's no contradiction. Not, not automatic. So, uh, I mean, you can go online. You find, you know, the 1875 translation. You've got all these different, not translation, dictionary. Uh, although, although, if you get a dictionary from 1950 and you look up the word gay, it does not mean what uh, the language hijackers have done to the word gay. Um, you know, now if you say, I was happy and gay, people are like, oh, whoa. <laughs> you know, what do you mean? But that's not a contradiction. That's the evolution of language, which should also tell us the monumental task that translators are faced with when they come to the, to the existing documents and translate them into a language. It's quite a, quite a challenge, and they do pretty good. Uh, very, very good, as a matter of fact. Anyway, he was an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, like me. Uh, he came to Ephesus. Well, it doesn't say that, but it would say that if I was living then. <laughs> Just seeing who's gullible and who's not, right? You can't mean that. He's arrogant. <laughs> anyway, he was an effective public speaker. Well, there have been many of them, and he was one. His eloquence strongly appeals to the Corinthians, and they're going to make a problem with that. He became very popular in Corinth to a fault. So you had people saying, well, I'd really like Apollos more than Paul. Well, I still like Paul more than Apollos. Yeah, well, I like Peter. Well, well, Rick's better than all of them. And that's what the kind of stuff was going on there. And Paul had to drag this out in the light and say, stop this. Who, who are you people? I didn't leave that kind of church there. <clears throat> the, the popularity contest caused divisions, and it nested in that church. And these lessons, you know, people act so surprised when oh, a Christian church did that. You, what do you to grow up? Go all the way back. You find, you find. Look what, Mo, what Aaron did. You know, Aaron making a golden cap. There's war. There's a spiritual war going on. Doesn't mean you approve it, but don't act like oh, it's so shocking. Anyway. <clears throat> Uh, verse 25, this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. You see what a gentleman Luke is? He doesn't say, here's what he got wrong. He, he just kind of gives us an overview. And he doesn't give us the, the, the dirty details. And uh, this is not, he's not the only one that presents, in the, new, in the Gospels, we have similar things. People, they're not trying to air laundry, but they are trying to make and preserve a critical point. This is uh, 20 years or so after the crucifixion and resurrection. There is no New Testament Bible as we know it. 
There are some, the James letter may be around, the Thessalonians, the Galatian letter, but they're not yet centralized. They're not put into a, a volume known as, you know, the Bible. Really, their Bible at this point was just the Old Testament, and the New Testament was evolving. And there's nothing wrong with that word evolve, not the evolution of the species. That's a, that's, that's a, a religion, not a science. It pretends to be a science, but really it's a religion. Anyway, like Islam pretends to be a religion, but really it's a political entity. Anyhow, uh, coming back to this, he it says here that he was fervent of spirit. Spirit, sorry, fervent in spirit. Well, he was passionate, but he was missing parts. We, we, you know, you can be passionate and wrong about something. Just because you're zealous doesn't mean you're automatically correct. In fact. You can win a debate and be wrong. Just the other side couldn't, couldn't find it. You know, couldn't, this is a scopes trial, this is a case in point. Just because you win a debate doesn't mean you're right. Still will come down to truth. Well, where else do we see this? Someone that is passionate about God, knowledgeable of the Old Testament, but still missing something. Well, we do see some of it in the apostles before Pentecost. Uh, they were fervent, but they lacked that fuller experience of the Holy Spirit. And there are a, little, a few moving parts with this, because Luke doesn't give us too much information. So you've got to tread a little lightly here. Fact is, he's, he's lacking. And it's linked to the baptism. Absent from Apollos was that God-given element that opens up the deeper understanding of Jesus Christ, of the Jewish Messiah, who is also the anointed for Gentiles, if they would receive him. He's everybody's Messiah, everyone's Christ who comes to him. Uh, Jesus said, I will in no way turn them down, those who come to him. He spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord. Well, he's a redeemed Old Testament believer in New Testament times at this point, And he's going by the scripture, not rabbinical Judaism. That's big for those days. Teaching the Old Testament scripture without the rabbis, as did John the Baptist. But it is hard to imagine. Now, many commentators will come along, good commentators too, and they'll say, well, he did not have knowledge of the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the, at Pentecost. Well, that's a tough one for me. It would be hard to imagine by this point anyone who did not hear about the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection in Jewish circles. But it is possible. He certainly did not have Pentecost or an understanding. So I kind of have to leave that out there because we just don't have the exact information. In fact, in chapter 28, when Paul gets to Rome and he starts engaging the Jewish uh, people there in the synagogue, this is what they say to him. We desire to hear from you what you think, for concerning this sect, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. And what we get out of that is that in these days, and it's not too far from the, the few years from this event here, uh, the, the, the knowledge of Jesus as Messiah had spread in Jewish circles. Uh, and they were still classifying Christianity as a sect of Judaism, when we are not a sect of Judaism. We're completely independent of Judaism, though we 
our origins are in Judaism. Uh, well, Old Testament, I should, I should make that distinction. Old Testament teachings. Because when you say Judaism, you imply the rabbi's influence, and, and that has nothing to do with Christianity. Anyway, it says, though he knew only the baptism of John. Well, John's baptism, what was that? Well, he called the Jews to repent and to submit to Old Testament teachings. That's what John's ministry was all about. And to demonstrate that, he called for public cleansing. Uh, you, you'd go and get baptized. It's not the same as Christian baptism. Uh, the same idea in the sense of drawing close to God, wanting God, wanting to obey, but not identical. It, it drew the Jews to obedience according to Revelation and not, uh, again, uh, teachings of men. But it did not develop. John's understanding of the water baptism did not develop into the Holy Spirit baptism, and John knew that. And so we read in 1 John, John the Apostle writing about John the Baptizer, I did not know him, John the Baptizer speaking. I did not know him, speaking of Jesus, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So John makes this distinction. That I'm baptizing you with water, but more is coming. Well, he died before it came. So here is Apollos, and he is stuck at John's baptism. Aquila and Priscilla picked this up. They're listening to him and saying, well, he's a man of Scripture, no question. He's not quoting rabbis. He's quoting Moses. He's quoting Isaiah. He's, he's a man of the Word. But he's missing key points about Messiah, and we're not told what those points are outside of the baptism. So it says, though he knew only the baptism of John, uh, he, he, he had to have been unclear about the substitutionary death that we sing about. When we, we were just singing about Christ dying for me, uh, he is the sacrifice uh, in my place. I don't have to take a sacrifice to the temple. Christ is my sacrifice. I don't have to worship at the altar in Jerusalem. We have an altar that uh, they know nothing of, and it is Christ. He is both the altar and the sacrifice. He is, he is a place where the sacrifice is placed, and he is, he is everything that I need to be right with God. And evidently, that was missing from his teachings. This is kind of encouraging, but not if you're guilt. <laughs> so, Go back and think a young pastor steps in the pulpit and he's repeating a lot of things he's been reading. He understands them, he believes them, and they are right. But they're really not his yet. And, and, and he's going to make some mistakes. Well, again, grow up. It's life. It's part of the congregation. You've not experienced this here. But it's part of the congregation to endure your pastor. You're going to make mistakes. I promise you, they do. I, I, like, I like separating myself from failures. It's just that it's all fake. <laughs> I can't get away from failing sometimes. You know, maybe your pastor says something to you the wrong way. He doesn't mean it that way. I mean, he goofs. You know, just so why don't you be merciless? You know what that comes with, a heavy price. If you don't show mercy, you're not getting it. God is very upfront about that. Uh, I'm, I'm all, I cringe when I hear 
Christian people just be unforgiving. It's like, man, you better lighten up on that. That's a big one. Anyway, uh, coming back to this, uh, here is Apollos. He's preaching from the scripture, but he's, you know, he's got a few spark plugs that just aren't firing. And here is a divine setup where God has put in his life these two people. What would have happened if they weren't there? Uh, and these were the right people, incidentally. Yes, he missed Pentecost. Uh, he didn't get that uh, Messiah was not only the Jewish Messiah, also the Gent- Gentile Christ. Acts chapter 1, Jesus said this about this, his baptism. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. What's the distinction? What makes us different? So we understand Messiah. We understand the cross of Christ, the resurrection, and we really get this part of it. Messiah is divine. He is the Son of God. You don't get that without the Holy Spirit. That's why Jehovah Witnesses are, are you know, upside down. Uh, they, they just don't, they, they refuse they blatantly change words in the scripture to, to they tailor them to fit their theology. So where it says that Christ was worshipped, and in the New Testament it was only applied to him, that word worship, not applied to anybody else, they change it to, you know, they showed him respect or obeisance. That's not the same thing. I show you respect and you show me respect. We don't worship each other. That's reserved. For the Christ. Anyway, verse 26. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. (laughs) You see them with Nerf bats clubbing him in the head. Uh, So he began to speak boldly because he knew the scripture. And he knew the Jews wanted scripture and weren't even getting it. Uh, and they didn't even know they were missing it. They thought the rabbis were the guys to listen to. And this was Jesus' con- contention with them. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, again, whatever, whatever it is he lacked, it was the Holy Spirit. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside. How kind, how wise that was. Not in front of everybody. They had the decency and the respect uh, they dared to correct him, and he dared to be corrected. Those of you youth growing up in the home, you know, one of the irritating things about being in the home under mom and dad is they correct you all the time. Well, the time is going to come where you're going to have to correct yourself or suffer the consequence, and then you're going to have kids, and the cycle repeats itself. Your kids are going to resent being corrected. But he who resents correction, what does the Bible say? He's stupid. That's what it says. It's from God's mouth. To your ears. Anyway, uh, so rather than kicking against it all the time, when you have your prayers, thank the Lord for those who correct you in love. And hopefully parents aren't belittling, on purposely belittling, you know what I mean, <laughs> belittling. Although there are some people, no matter how you correct them, you're wrong. Well, this is one of my favorites. You correct somebody for doing something wrong, and then they find something to correct for you. You know, one even. Like, yeah, well, that shirt doesn't go with that coat. I mean, it's just a petty shot. It's like, oh, man, they missed the whole point. Now i gotta, now I got to yell at them. <laughs> no. Anyway, just think about it. If you were Apollos and you knew the scripture, and here these two in the audience come up and say, <clears throat> can we talk to you a minute? 
you're missing some points here. How would you have responded to that? It would not have been easy, but the Holy Spirit was in it, and Apollos didn't even know it at the time. God does not need our approval to work in our hearts. Well, he doesn't the initial, certainly, that when you, to come to Christ, he needs, you, you, he's going to knock on the door, he's not going to kick it in. I stand at the door and I knock, if you will open. But once he's in, it's a different game. And Jonah found that out. Jonah belonged to God. He was a prophet of the Lord. And yet he just felt he could just run away. And God said, well, let me influence you a little bit in another direction. <laughs> well, uh, I, we're almost out of time. 1 Corinthians 14, 15. You know, if I'm going to pray, I'm going to pray with understanding. If I'm going to sing, I'm going to sing with understanding. Understanding is a big part of what we do. And those who say, we Christians are irrational. Well, some are, but that's not Christianity. It says they explained to him the way of God more accurately. So they listened, they discerned, they pinpointed, and they acted on that. You can't always do that. They had that opportunity, verse 27. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, uh, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who believed through grace. So again, Luke just says, okay, that's it. He, didn't have, he missed a few parts. They fixed it. We move on. He doesn't dwell on it. Oh, and another thing about Apollos. Uh, he doesn't do that. So this region, he, he leaves Ephesus. He's going to Corinth and where Athens and Corinth, that, that part of Greece. And uh, he's not known over there. So they're going to write a letter for him because they, they just came from there. And it says, The brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, they received him. Why? Why did they write? Because of imposters. That's why they wrote the letter. The first Christians had to deal with the first false teachers. It wasn't like, oh, Christianity is here, and it took a while for Satan to catch up. He was on the job from Judas. I mean, from just, you know, he, that's the way it was, lurking everywhere, ready to take advantage of some sleeping church or some sleeping Christian. How come when someone gives you a... What am I doing? <laughs> Folding my arms, getting real comfortable up here. How come when a Christian has a sacred cow, you're not allowed to even say, talk about it in a negative? What does First John say? Beloved. I wouldn't have started that way. I would have some pinheads. <laughs> Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone into the world. Even in the days of the apostles, the place was infested with false teachings. And so the, the apostles were sounding the alarm. We have a, a movement, uh, people are saying, well, is it the Holy Spirit going on? I think in Kentucky, wherever it is. Okay, it might be, might not. It is fine to say, we will see. That is testing the spirit. And if anybody, what do you, how can you not like that? I got the feeling, brother. Please. <laughs> just talcum powder, sprinkling on them. Anyway, that's enough with the sacred cows. Just lighten up. Just, if it's God, it will prevail. And if it's not God, he will expose it. And what does it have to do with you anyway? Who made you a champion for all the causes of events that are going on? So just, you know, focus on the field you have to plow. That should take all your energy anyway. Energy. Slurring words up here. I feel fine. <laughs> he greatly helped those who believe through grace. He's in Corinth, and the, he's an instant asset to the church. Verse 28. 
For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. You've got to like Apollos, but he's going he's to stumble. Not here in this section, but I'm going to give it to you anyway, because I like pointing out other people's failures. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. I do not. Uh, anyway, now he's not only fervent, the vigor is there like Stephen. Nobody can say, well, that's not in the Bible, because he knew his scripture and he'd take him to task. Showing from the scriptures that Jesus is Messiah. The scriptures our final authority. Uh, now he's armed not only with this knowledge of the scripture, but with the Holy Spirit. His hiccup in service, and this is not to pick on him, this is to alert us. There's a hiccup, 1 Corinthians 16. Now concerning our brother Apollos, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. Now can I put some inflection on that? I strongly urged him, but he was quite unwilling He'll come, though, when it's convenient. You see, that's exactly what's going on. The Hebrew brings that out. I mean, the Greek, when it says, I strongly urged him, it means strongly urged him. He wouldn't have to do this with Titus or Timothy or Silas. He would say, <clears throat> I need you to go to Berea. They'd be gone. But Apollos, you know, he knows the Bible just as good as Paul. Maybe there's some of that going on. The commentators go easy on him. They say, Apollos wasn't led. Well, that's not what it says. I think he was strongly urged. And I think that urging came from Paul through the Spirit. Now, granted, at the time Paul sends, wants to send him, Corinth is, is, is having, you know, is in great distress, a church in distress. And he's saying to Apollos, look, I just want to preach. I don't want to do this pastoring stuff. And this is a problem in New Testament Christianity. I just want to be a Bible teacher. I don't want to deal with the people. <laughs> then you can't teach the Bible. If you can't stand the heat, don't teach the Bible. They go together. Because dealing with the people of God will, will shape your theology and your heart. And you will find that, Lord, why do I love this guy? Because it's the Holy Spirit. Anyway, and it's probably going the same way, too. They're saying about their pastor, why do we keep going to that church? <laughs> because love compels us. Anyway, hopefully, in an ideal world. So I need to finish this, uh, finish this up. Paul wasn't going to push him up the hill. Paul was not going to get in the flesh and start stomping his feet. I am the great apostle Paul. It's fine. He didn't want to come right now. But he'll come when he shoots that. He, he lets, and then what does the church in Corinth say when that's read to them? At a convenient time, what's that? Don't we count? We need this guy here. Some of the good, the good Christians would be saying, what is that? Knowing Paul, and we know a lot about him. He's disappointed in Apollos at this time. But he's not disowning him. Now come to that. A convenient approach to ministry is missing from the life of Paul. This is the man who gets stoned, dragged out of the city, and then goes back into that city. That's not convenience. Convenience is dialing 911 and get, get help. As I mentioned, Silas, Timothy, Tychicus, who was a troubleshooter for Paul. When Paul said, I need you to go somewhere, it would have been, aye, aye, sir, and execution of orders. That is what Paul wanted from Apollos. However, even though Apollos kind of pushed back here, he remained useful to the Lord. I need to hear that. Because maybe I am an underachiever of some sort in some area. 
and I drop the ball, I get other chances. Titus chapter 3, Paul writes to the pastor there, the pastor named Titus. He says, send Zenos, the lawyer. Why? Oh, okay. And Apollos on their journey with haste that they may lack nothing. There we see him in action. He's still an asset. He's still serving. He's out in the field doing what he's supposed to do. Whatever shortcomings Apollos had, arrogance was not one of them. He was useful to Christ. See these lessons. They abound off the scriptures. They challenge all of us. Let's pray. Our Father, we um, just always, I think the born again are always impressed with just your soft touch that is very, very heavy in other ways. And we thank you. We thank you that it is this way it gets things done. And we ask that as the week unfolds before us, that we would take these lessons to heart, that we could better serve you and each other. That's right, Lord, we we know each other is part of it. If you've been listening online or watching online, if you're here in the church and you've not opened your heart to Christ, and you should know that all that we've been discussing is about those first Christians who were trying to get lost souls to not go to hell. And the only way to do that was to share with them who Jesus Christ is and to invite them to receive him as Lord the one who deals with their sin. If you would like to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then all you have to do is receive him. You make the confession of faith. We've come to understand that this type of formula works well. If you confess with your mouth and say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have broken your commandments. And I ask you to forgive me. There's no one else that can take away the judgment I deserve except you. No one else is good enough. No one else is strong enough. And I ask you to forgive me and receive me as your own. I give my life to you right here, right now. And I ask from this moment forward that you would be to me, my Lord and my Savior. And now, Father, if anyone has made this confession, may they not be ashamed, but may they be eager to tell it. And may they not be hesitant to step forward and make their confession known when given the invitation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.